Well, this Christmas it is great to remember that Jesus Christ did come, but it's also very exciting to think that Jesus Christ is coming again. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Is anybody looking forward to Christmas future, not just Christmas past? And so it's great to sing about that, and actually we're going to be reading about that. If you take out your handout, you can see on the back there on our scripture of the day, we're going to be reading about when Jesus returns this week. A great thought to consider at Christmas time. That just like it's so exciting that he came once, he is coming again. And so I'd encourage you with that thought. And I want you to grab your Bible and open this big book up to the specific book that we have been studying in 1 Thessalonians. So hopefully you've got a Bible. And if you do, could you please open it up to 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be finishing up uh, chapter 2. So this is the 16th week of our church and we decided from the beginning... That instead of deciding what we wanted to preach on, we were going to just study this book of 1 Thessalonians and let God tell us and our church here in Huntington Beach exactly what he told this church as an example to us. And it has been a great study and we are concluding chapter 2 here today. And really the two chapters of 1 Thessalonians really describe the two chapters we've had so far of our church. There was the beginning When we started our church with really an ice cream truck is how this church got started. Driving around, inviting people here. And then we started meeting here and we started preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word of the Lord sounded forth. That's what chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians is about. And then in chapter 2 you get to Paul's relationship with these people. And he refers to them as his brothers. And he says, I love you like a mother loves her own nursing child. And I speak to you like a father would speak to his own children. And we've really gotten into this idea that this church that God's bringing together here in Huntington Beach, if this is going to be a real godly church, then we're going to have to love one another like a family. We're going to have to get past the superficial relationships that so many people at church have. And we're going to have to really get to know each other and care for each other and even welcome strangers like they're going to become our dear friends. And we get to the climax of that thought, that church is a family in our text. He takes that idea that we've learned for multiple weeks, and he takes it to the next level. It's really the climax uh, of what he's said so far. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and follow along as I read the word God has for us this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 to 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers... For a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you for you? are our glory and joy. Now when you just read those words, it might seem like this is a passage, how could this even apply to me? This just seems like something Paul is expressing between him and this church, the Thessalonians, where he got somehow separated from them, torn away from them, and he wants to come back and see them, but he can't, and he really seems to think highly of these people, calling them his glory and joy. And you might think, well, this is about Paul, that super zealous guy back in the New Testament in this church. How could this relate to me? That might be your first thought. 
to just a lot of people, when we read the Bible, we just think about it intellectually and we kind of just move past it. But I don't want to do that with this passage. In fact, as I was studying this passage, it wasn't until later in the week that it really gripped me what is being said here. And you might not catch it when you read it in the English because it says, we were torn away from you. I mean, that sounds kind of dramatic. That sounds like, wow, I was right there with you and then I got separated from you. I mean, okay, I kind of get that. But then when you study it in the Greek language, the word there is the word that we would get orphan from. So what he really says here, torn away from you could be one way to say it, but what he's really saying is, I feel like a parent who is separated from his child. A parent who has lost a child. And you guys now are my orphan children out there on your own. And we've been separated. in a separation that should never take place with a parent with their young newborn child. Now how does that tug on your heartstrings? See, That's a little more intellectual there. Because all of us, even if we're not parents, we had parents... And we feel separation. We, we sense that idea. If I tell you that someone is an orphan, immediately, hopefully, you feel for them in the pit of your stomach. I mean, there's two things that we know are not supposed to be that the, the way life is supposed to work. One is, kids aren't supposed to grow up without parents. And two is, no parent is supposed to have to watch their kid die. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And the word that Paul used is bringing up that kind of imagery right there, my friends. He says, I, I mean, we thought it was intense when he said I was like a father with his kids. We thought it was intense when he said, I loved you like a mom loves her precious little newborn baby that she's nursing. But now he takes it to the, to the highest level yet. No, when I'm away from you, when I got separated from you because of what happened there with the persecution in Thessalonica, I feel like a parent whose child has died. That's how I feel. I want you to imagine, parents, and I know this is a place we don't want to go in our minds, but even if you're not a parent, it won't be hard to picture having a child, a child whom you love, a child who is dear to you. And then having that child, if your child today was taken away from you, how would that make you feel? i got three kids. I've been blessed by the Lord in a great way. I've got a son who's eight, a daughter who's five, and then i got this cute little kid. I mean, one of the candidates for cutest kid ever, and I'm not just saying this. Other people have told me, okay? I mean, it, it's kind of ridiculous the way some people like this guy. And I was holding this kid. He's two and a half years old. His name is Jack, and he's obsessed with Mario, Okay? the character from Nintendo, if you play video games. And we're playing Mario Kart, and we got a little bit of a... He's sitting on my lap as we're playing Mario Kart. And a certain aroma wafts into my nostrils. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about, right? And we got to go change a diaper. And we do that. And I'm holding him, and he starts screaming right in my face. Like loud. Like something's really wrong. And I'm looking at him and I'm like, I think I put the diaper on right. You know what I mean? What could this be? And he's screaming right in my face and I'm holding him up. And I get that feeling that parents get when your kid is in pain and you don't know what to do about it. That hopelessness that you feel. And all of a sudden, this dude throws up everything. I mean, it's like how much could, how did that all fit in his little tummy? And it's like, 
right on, Dad. Because I was like, what's wrong? I mean, it's all over the floor. It's all over everywhere. I mean, it's gross. I mean, you can't, there's no smell that bad. You know what I mean? And we clean him up, and 10 minutes later, what am I doing? Giving him kisses. And if you asked him the next day, hey, Jack, what happened? He's like, I threw up. Whoa, that sounds terrible. I threw up in daddy's beard. That's what he said. (laughs) Now, am I grossed out by this kid? Am I like, ugh? No. I'm like a dog returning to the vomit. Like 10 minutes later, where am I? Right back in the kid's face. That's where I am. Are you okay, Jack? I love you, Jack. If you took that kid away from me, right now, today, I would be pretty messed up. If you told me right now that kid had just died in the kid's ministry, I would not be able to finish completing this sermon. That, the kid that you love being ripped out of your arms and taken from you, that's what Paul just said. And he's not talking about his kids. He's saying, this is how I feel about people at church, people that I just met, that I just preached the gospel to, that just got saved, and now I'm separated from you, and I feel like a dad who just lost his baby that he loved. Go back to Acts 17, and let's just look again how this church got started. And you can see this separation, this ripping apart, this orphaning, if you will, where Paul loses his new his new children, his, his new sons and daughters in the faith that he's led to Christ. If you go to Acts 17, there's a mob and they're looking for Paul. They're so upset with him because he's taking away all the Jews and they're starting to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and they're leaving the synagogue. And so if you were here last week, we talked about this persecution that arose and they grab Jason. They can't find Paul. So he's staying with this guy, Jason. They grab him and some of the new Christians and there's a mob in front of the city. Verse 8 says, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And immediately, it says, the brothers, this new family that God is putting together, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue in this next place, and they started all over in another town. Now, if you read the whole chapter here in Acts 17, it tells us that Paul preached the gospel in the Jewish synagogue three different Saturdays. He was in there on the Sabbath. So we we get, that's the facts that we get. We have three Saturdays of preaching. We have clearly from 1 Thessalonians this great salvation in church that rises up. Then we see Paul immediately getting told at night to flee town. Now, I don't know if it was longer than three Saturdays. I don't know exactly how long it was. There's a lot of debate about it. But the thing is, this was a short-term relationship that Paul had with these people. We're not talking about knowing them for years. We're talking about maybe months, perhaps weeks that he's known these people. And then it's, it's unclear what happens because they're looking for Paul and Silas. They settle for Jason and these other guys from the church And it says in our translation, they get money as security from Jason. Something happens where they're threatening Jason that he offers them something. Money, it seems like, might have been involved. But he offers some kind of security, some kind of deposit here that makes the mob die down. Some people would conjecture that what happened here is he says, fine, don't beat us up. 
Paul will leave town if that's really what you want. Or maybe he strikes some kind of deal that makes them barter that Paul's not going to come back to this town again and raise any more of this ruckus. Some people that think that might be why Paul couldn't go back to Thessalonica. We don't really know. What we know is he shows up, he preaches the gospel, revival's breaking out in the city, and then it's all over, he's gone. And with people he's only known for a short time, he compares them like a parent losing a child, is how he feels about that separation. Now, I've got to ask you a question here. We're a brand new church. We're just getting started. We're just getting to know each other. I'm just getting to know some of you guys. Is that how, if, if this all of a sudden was done today, would you feel like a parent who had just lost a child? Would you care about the other people here at this church to that degree. That's the example here of Paul. Now, you know, go back to 1 Thessalonians because that's not all that he says. He, he uses that orphan word that, that paints that picture for us, which I think every, every one of us can relate to, especially those of us who are parents. But then he says this, but since we were torn away from you, look back at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. He says, since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly. Man, we tried so hard. We gave it all we had. And with great desire to see you face to face. I didn't just want to write you this letter. That's what he's saying. I'm not content with a long-distance relationship. No, you're like the family I want to come home and see on Christmas. You're like the person I have to be with. No, I really want to be with you face to face, mouth to mouth, like intimate, like right up in each other's space. That's what he's saying. And the word there, great desire, is the Greek word that some of you might have heard in a sermon before, epithumia. Usually when we use that word epithumia, we are translating it lust. That's usually how that word is translated. And a lot of times it has a negative connotation. Like something that I want, that I'm craving, that my flesh is desiring. I'm lusting after something. He uses that same word to say, here's how I want to see you. Like I'm lusting after it. Like I have this strong, passionate desire to be with you. This doesn't sound like a lot of churches I've been to, my friends. I don't know people who are like, oh, I missed a Sunday and it just killed me not to be there. I haven't seen you for a while. And I just feel like something's wrong that we aren't face to face. I want to see how you're doing. I want to look you in the eyes and, and get a glimpse into your soul and know you and be known by you. This is definitely a level of passion that we're going to have to aspire to. We're going to have to set as a goal. Point number one, let's put it down like this. We need to get passionate about God's people. We, we need to stop doing church in this kind of everybody's fine kind of way where everybody kind of keeps to themselves and puts on your happy face. And we need to start getting real and open and honest and let people in to see who we are. And we need to get to know other people and we need to care. And if somebody here at this church, maybe they end up in your small group or you start to get to know them. Maybe even just today, you're inspired by this message. You say, hey, I don't know you. What are you doing for lunch today? Let's go out to lunch. And you get to know people. You start reaching out. Like when you go to those, anybody going to awkward family gatherings this time of year, right, where you're seeing people you haven't seen for a while, what do you got to do at those family gatherings? You got to stick out your hand. You got to try initiate conversation. And we should be doing that here at this church. I want to get to know these people. I think they're my brothers in Christ. 
I want to get to love them. I know that's what God did for me. He loved the world. He gave me His one and only Son. I mean, there's the Father in heaven who is willingly sending His one and only Son away from Him in an act of love for us. And now, we're going to show the world we're really Jesus' disciples if we have love for one another. That's got to be a goal on everybody's radar here. If this is your church, then you are here to love the other people that God brings to this church. And if you were to find out that so-and-so were to stop coming here, or you were to find out that they would have this trial in their life, or this hard time, or that maybe they would stop wanting to be a Christian, and they would fall away from the faith in Jesus, man, your heart would break for that person. And you would go after them. You would pursue them in love. And we're not talking about your family. I understand that it's natural for everybody to feel like this about your family. What's supernatural is when the church feels like this about people they didn't grow up with and don't really know. That's how you know God's working among a group of people. When we care about each other as much as we would our natural family. The analogy is here. We've got to aspire to this. Go to, go to 3 John. Go to the, there's a few, 1 John at the back of your Bible and then two other little chapter-long epistles, 2 John and then 3 John. Right before Jude and Revelation John there, you can find 3 John. Look at it with me. And there's a verse that maybe you've heard before. It's kind of on, uh, on the Day Spring Christmas uh, or the Day Spring Christian cards. It says in 3 John, verse 4, no chapter because it is all one chapter, verse 4. Maybe, maybe you've heard, uh, heard it this. I have no greater joy. There is nothing that brings me more pleasure and delight than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Okay? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now if I say, who wants your kids to grow up and live the right way and be saved by Jesus and know God? Who wants that for your kids? Well, every parent's hand goes up. I, and I think this would apply to our children. But I don't think this is talking about our children. I don't think the, the, the elder Gaius that, that John is writing to here, I, I, there's nothing that would give me an indication they're, they're, they're family in a blood natural kind of way. They're family in the blood of Jesus Christ. They're both disciples of the Lord Jesus. They've both denied themselves, taken up their crosses, and they're now following Christ. And he says, when I hear that those Christians, those people that I encouraged and helped to become believers, when I hear that they're still living for Jesus, that is my greatest joy. My greatest joy comes from other Christians at church. That's what he's saying right there. Now I see people getting a lot of joy when they go to Disneyland. I see people getting a lot of joy when they go to the beach. I see people happy when they're with their family. They really like that. But who's getting joy at church? Who can come to church and say, see that person right there? Man, they're living for Jesus like they never have before. See that person over there? They were in my home fellowship group. They just told us last Friday night that they became a Christian here at this church. Man, that's exciting. That's where my joy comes from, is God's people and seeing him work among us. I mean, this is a familiar phrase. If you've grown up going to church, you know this. I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in the truth. Is that really your greatest joy? I mean, Paul's saying this is like my worst pain. I can't think of anything worse than a parent to lose their child. It's my worst pain to be separated from you. Here, it's my greatest joy to see that you are walking in the truth. Could we honestly say that we have that kind of passion for other people at church? Even people we're just meeting. This is a challenging idea. 
for us. I find that people often have no problem separating. A lot of people today have no problem coming to church once a week and not really talking to people at church in between those services. People today, if something else comes up, if something big's going on with your family, if something big's going on at work, if you get tickets to the, to the Clippers game, you might just miss church that night. That's how I see a lot of people doing it. There's no pang of separation. Oh, I miss church. You know, it'll be around next time. That's how I see a lot of people dealing with it. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look what, how Paul says. He, we've got this separation. Hopefully we've painted that picture there that our greatest joy should be other Christians living for Jesus Christ and it should pain us to be separated. I mean, I was just thinking as I was studying this, this is like me showing up here today and saying, guys, this is my last Sunday as the pastor of this church. I've got cancer and the only place they can treat it is Guatemala. So I'll see you guys later. I'm just trying to create some kind of scenario because I don't know, I mean, I, we don't have this mob of persecution. But what if I, here we are just getting started, we're just getting to know each other, and I say now, hey guys, I'm out. Is the gospel still going to ring out from this group? Is this group still going to hunker down and love each other? That's the Thessalonian church. You're just getting started, and your pastor and his right-hand man, Silas, get run out of town. And they still kept going. Why? Because they cling to each other. See? That's a, that's a strong example. And then it says this. It just gets even more intense. Look at verse 18. It says, but we wanted to come to you. And now Paul, he's writing this on behalf of himself and Silas and Timothy. But now he just singles himself out. I, Paul, again and again, like I tried to come to you and it didn't work out. And I tried to come to you again and it didn't work out. And then he says, and here's who stopped me. Here's who kept me. But Satan hindered us. I don't know what that means. I, I mean, he was trying to go and see these people, and he literally felt like Satan was there blocking the path. The idea of hindered here would be like in a military battle in war, like where your enemy is destroying the bridge or building a trench in the road so you can't keep chasing them. Like they're putting a roadblock between you and them so you can't come and get to them. He's like, I came, I tried to come one time, I tried to come again, and Satan put a roadblock so I couldn't come to see you. Here's what disturbs me. Most Christians today, they don't need any kind of roadblock to not come to church or to not really get personal with other Christians. They're doing Satan's work for him. We got all kinds of excuses about why we don't love one another, about why we're too busy to spend time with one another. Usually we point the finger at the other people and we say, well, if they want to get to know me, I'm right here. See? Isn't that how, haven't you heard that before? Haven't you heard that when somebody's leaving the church? What do they always say when they're leaving the church? Well, I'm just really not living for Christ right now, and it's my fault, and you guys have given me great opportunities, but I've blown every one of them. And so now I'm going to go back to a life of sin and rebellion. You ever heard that as people are walking out of church? No, I've never heard that. That often is what's happening, but that's not what's said. What's said is, well, I don't really like the pastor, and so-and-so there, they, they gave me a look one time that made me think they were judging me, and that person over there, they once didn't pet my dog, and I'm peacing out. That's the, the, where's the finger pointed when people have problems at church? See, there's this extra work that you got to do to say that you're the problem, see. And most people, man, 
every other person here. They're not somebody to pursue and love. You know what the other people are around here? They're excuses why I don't need to be the Christian I'm called to be. Because they're not doing it either. That's how a lot of people act about their brothers and sisters at church. They judge them. Man, Satan wants you away from other Christians. Satan wants you to be out on your own thinking you can live for Jesus Christ by yourself. That is a lie. You're strong enough. You're fine. You've got everything you need. Satan wants you to believe that. See? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. We haven't really talked about our adversary yet here in Satan. And some people can, can, uh, can, can talk about Satan way too much. And some people, they can make the mistake of acting like Satan isn't doing anything at all. And 1 Peter chapter 5, it tells us how we're supposed to think about Satan. And uh, obviously Satan is a powerful foe. We know that we can resist him. We know that we have spiritual armor to fight against him. But you notice what uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 19 does not say is that when Satan, I tried to come and get in again, and Satan hindered me, and at that point I said, bind you, Satan. And then I came back to Thessalonica. You notice how he doesn't say that in that, right? Did Satan actually stop Paul from coming to Thessalonica? Did that actually cause real harm in the life of that church? So you don't underestimate Satan. Oh, trust me, Jesus Christ is going to win the victory. But here's a warning in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says this, be sober-minded. Hey, think seriously, everybody. Be watchful. Be on the alert. Be ready. Your adversary. See, you've got somebody who's against you. The devil, the slanderer, man, he wants to cut you down. And he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is going around and he's looking for prey. He's looking for people to take down, to destroy their faith in Jesus Christ, to get them to stop going to church. And I love the analogy here, like a roaring lion. Lion. You know why I like this? Because I've seen the National Geographic shows. And you've seen them too, haven't you? And you can see it right now, crouching in the tall grass, right? And there's the little cute gazelle over there. Oh, look at the cute gazelles. Oh, they're so cute. And the lion's crouching. You know what I mean? And then all of a sudden, the music kicks up, right? The lion springs into action. And which gazelle does he go for? The alpha male. The one in the middle of the pack. No, which ones do they get? The weak ones. The small ones. What? The ones on the outside, see? The ones who have isolated themselves. That's who the lions go after. The ones who think, I don't need to be there. I'll be fine. Sure, young gazelle, keep telling yourself that. Somebody's coming for you in the tall grass right now. Why do I tell people I want them to come to church on Sunday? Why do I encourage people to go to home fellowship groups? Is it because I'm nagging people? Is it because I want to boost the numbers of our church? I don't want Satan to destroy your soul. That's why I tell you to come to church. That's why I tell you to start loving these other people. I don't want you to be prey for our adversary who has taken many people down. You think the gazelles would get the point after watching so many of their friends die. I would be, I would be best friends with the biggest gazelle. With the strongest horns, he would be my bro. It's like, bro, you want the water first, bro? You want the water first? You want the tall grass? What do you want, bro? Can I get you anything? I mean, I would be, I'd be looking for the most righteous 
godly man or woman I could find at this church, and I would be like, what are you doing for lunch? See, I want to eat with you. I want to be friends with you. You look like somebody who can stand for Jesus Christ. I need you in my life. Man, I don't know if anybody's seen this YouTube video. It's got like over 7 million views. It's the battle at Kruger. I don't know if anybody's seen this thing. But it's one of these lion attacks. And it's this family of water buffalo. Nobody's, I mean, the gazelles are a lot cuter for the illustration. Like water buffalo, you know, nobody's bringing that stuffed animal home. You know what I'm saying? And it's the water buffalo. It's like the big alpha water buffalo coming. And it's like his family. And they're walking along. And because of the camera, and it's great. It's just like some, some like tourist on a safari catch of this. And you get all their live reactions. You, Battle at Kruger, if you want to look this up. And they're like watching. And there's four lions crouching in the tall grass. And here comes water buffalo family. And you're just like feeling it. Like water buffalo is what's for dinner, you know. And... and the lions attack. And of course, which water? Do they get the alpha male out leading the herd? His family? No, they go for the weakest, littlest one. And they actually take it down. And it actually falls into this water. And like the other water buffalo scatter. And there's four lions that all are getting their this jaws on this little water buffalo. And the people are just like, oh. You know, all these people like us, Orange County city slickers in Africa, just freaking out. Oh, I've never seen anything. Why have you ever seen this? Oh, it's dramatic, right? All of a sudden, like, an alligator comes up out of the water and like takes a, takes a big old bite out of, out of one of the lions and they start getting scared. And now the, the alligator grabs one side of this water buffalo. The lions grab the other side. And we start playing water buffalo tug of war right here. And the lions, this alligator is huge. And the lions actually pull the water buffalo away from the alligator and get it back up on the land. And you're just like this poor water buffalo. And it's still moving. All of a sudden, you can see like a hundred water buffalo coming up. Like the whole, not, not the family, like the herd. Like all the water buffalo within like a 15-mile radius. And they come crouching up like this. And there's four lions with their jaws on this water buffalo. And guess who's back? Dad's back. And he gives one of the lions the horns, and all the other water buffalo are like trampling behind him. And he gives him the horns. And one of the lions is like, I'm out. And that emboldens this alpha water buffalo. And he goes up. You can see this on YouTube. I'm not making this up. He goes up, and he gives one of those lions the horns, and the lion gets like airtime. He like tosses the lion up in the air. And now all the water buffaloes are feeling it, and they just descend on these lions, and they chase them all away. And the baby little water buffalo gets up and goes off with the herd. Man, you need a herd if you're going to fight against the lion, my friends. You need a whole bunch of people. And if you ever got it in your heart one day that you didn't want to come to church anymore and you didn't want to read your Bible and you didn't want to live for Jesus Christ, you don't want one person coming after you. You don't want two people coming after you. You want every single person at this church to know your name, to wonder where you are, and to come over to your house like a herd of water buffalo. Getting you out of the jaws of the lion, man. You need help. Please, I'm begging you right now. Point number two, don't isolate yourself. Don't isolate yourself. Don't start going to the fringe of the pack. Don't start keeping your sins secret from other people. 
Don't start prioritizing other things above meeting with other believers. You need help or you will die. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Take this seriously. If you're a water buffalo or you're a gazelle and you know there's a lion out there, you walk differently, my friends. This is not casual. I, I, I don't like when people come to church and they're like, oh, what is it? Oh, it's kind of a casual environment. There is nothing casual about what we are doing here at church. Okay, yeah, well, this is Huntington Beach. We can wear casual, but, but it's not casual what we're doing. There's a war for souls. And people are getting saved from the jaws of the lion, and people are getting dragged out and being eaten right in front of us. It's happening right here at this church. Make sure you're a part of the herd. Go to Proverbs. Here's just a word of wisdom for everybody here. I love the way it says it in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. Look at it with me in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. It puts it like this. It's just a, this is one of the most, uh, most beautiful sounding put downs I've ever heard in my entire life. This is how you trash talk right here. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. I mean, that's like a, that's like a Lord of the Rings way to say you're selfish. <laughs> you're a narcissist, right? He breaks out against all sound judgment. Isn't that just nice? Oh, look at that kid over there just wandering into the street. Oh, they're just breaking out of all sound judgment, right? I mean, that's the nicest way to say you're stupid I've ever heard in my entire life. Here's sound judgment trying to keep you safe, and you're just breaking out of it. You're just doing whatever you want to do because nobody's the boss of you because you don't really need anybody because you're going to be okay on your own, just you and Jesus. Hey, you tell me where this book says you're okay on your own, just you and Jesus. No, it says be by yourself, just you and Jesus. That's breaking out against sound judgment. That's what it says. It says you need other people. And I would not want to think that I was doing Satan's work for him by taking myself away from God's people. How sad that Christians are making Satan's job easier. We should be so tight. We should be so one family, like-minded, in love with each other. That man, Satan, if he wants to get souls here in Huntington Beach, he's going to have to really work hard to pry people away from this herd that God's bringing together. Don't get isolated. Right now, if you feel like there's people who don't really know you, man, come to the Compass Connect table. Come and talk to me. Let's make sure you know some people here at this church before you leave here today. There is a lion out there, and he's looking to devour you. Get to know some of the other people, please. Please. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians, because you might think, wow, this is intense. You're telling me hey, I, missing people at church is like missing my own child then you're, this is like Satan's trying to split us up. What could be more intense? Well, the next two verses, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 19 and 20. Look what it just escalates. This thought here almost sounds ungodly when you first read it. It almost sounds wrong. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? I mean, what am I really hoping in? What really brings me pleasure and makes me happy? What am I going to really say at the end of my life, I've done that matters? My crown of boasting. And not just at the end of my life. Look, before our Lord Jesus at his coming. This is talking about judgment day. This is talking about when Jesus comes again, not as a baby in a manger, but as a king to reign. And he's going to judge the world. And it's saying, what's really going to matter at the end of your life when you stand before Jesus Christ? 
And then he says, is it not you? You are our glory and joy. I mean, when it's all said and done, when our time is over, what is going to matter? How many family gatherings we had around the holidays? Not ultimately going to matter. How many times we went to Disneyland? If we had a Disneyland pass, did we make all the memories? Did we take all the pictures? Those are good things, but that's not what really matters. He says, here's what matters when I die. The other people that I invested my life into. The people that I gave the gospel to. The people that I helped become a Christian. The people that I encouraged to keep on standing for Jesus Christ and not to fall away. You, Thessalonians, who I only met for a short time and I just got to preach the gospel and then we were separated. You, at the end of my life, will be what matters. That's what he says to them. Like, when he stands before Jesus... He's going to have something actually to speak about that is worth talking about. These people became Christians. That's what's going to matter about his life. Is that what you think about? If you were to summarize your life, what really matters from everything you've ever done in all the days that God has given you on this planet, do you think, well, helping so-and-so become a Christian, that's what really mattered. Contributing to what was going on at my church, building up the body, going to that small group, encouraging the other believers. When my friends stopped coming, I called them up. I had lunch with them. I pursued them. When they told me they were struggling with that sin, I prayed for them. I followed up with them. I came alongside of them. I love them. That's what's going to matter. Paul goes so far as to say, and we know Paul, he's very clear. I'm not going to boast in anything but my Lord Jesus Christ. But then here he's saying, actually, I do have one more thing I'll boast about. Something I'll glory in. And that's the work that God did through me in you. Now everybody that I helped become a Christian, like you Thessalonians, my spiritual children, I will stand up for you. And I will see you shining in the glory of Jesus Christ on that day of judgment, and that will have mattered with my life. Is that how you think about your life? Man, if they had to summarize your life right now, put it in a phrase, would it be something about you helping other people become Christians, or you loving God's people at that church? Or would your tombstone look pretty much like everybody else's tombstone, good guy, loved by his family, good life? See, we're different than everybody else. This is our glory. This is our joy. Everybody God saves. Everybody God brings together. This is our family. We will stand together in front of Jesus Christ, and we will look at each other, and we will say, this was worth it right here. That's what matters. That's what Paul's saying. If I'm separated from you, it's like I'm separated from my entire life's purpose, is helping other people become Christians. Because the truth is, if it's about me getting saved, guess what? I'm already saved. You already saved? We got some saved people here today. If it's about you being saved, you think you can worship Jesus better here or in his glorious presence? Which one will you be more ready to worship him? I mean, hey, I like the violin. I hope you like the violin. I think being in Jesus' presence will inspire greater worship. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? So why are we still here then, my friends? It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about these other people that are right here. Go to Philippians. You'll see that Paul talks about this a lot. Let me just give you one other letter. A couple pages over to the left. Philippians 2.16. 
Philippians 2.16. I mean, Paul, he started a lot of churches. He led a lot of people to Christ. And he acted like that was his thing that was going to stand up on the day of judgment. That was what was really mattered. In fact, here's how he puts it in the negative. Philippians 2, verse 16. He's encouraging these guys to shine his lights in the world. And he says to them, hold fast to the word of life. Keep living as a Christian. Don't fall away. Don't get eaten by the lion. That's what he's saying. Stand firm to the end. Otherwise... So that in the day of Christ, when I stand before him in judgment, when Christmas comes again, and I meet Jesus, I may be proud, I'm going to boast, I'm going to have something of significance to report to the Lord Jesus that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul is going so far as to say, that I helped you guys become Christians. I preached the gospel to you and you got saved. And if there's not that to say about on Judgment Day, if I don't have people to point to and say, hey, these people became Christians and I made a difference in their life. I helped them grow. I helped them stay strong to the end. If I can't say that about other people, then my life has been in what does he say? Vain. To live a life without helping other people become Christians is a vain life in Paul's opinion, which happens to be recorded in inspired scripture straight from God. This is what matters in your life. If we get to outlive you on this planet, we will stand there, especially if I'm your pastor, and we will speak of you. And what will really stand out, if you've ever been to a funeral, if you've been to the funeral of someone who helped other people become Christians, it is completely different from every other kind of funeral. Because they don't talk about the good times, they don't talk about the parties, they don't talk about how they went and got drunk fishing together one time. They say, that person changed my life. And I will see them again. That person made a difference in my eternity. Who's going to say that at your funeral? Who's going to make your life worth it? That's what Paul is concerned. If they fall away, then was it even worth it? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Here he says it in the positive. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, like a parent who misses his kids, my brothers, we're a family. I love you. I long for you. And then he says, you're my joy and you're my crown. So please, Stand firm in the Lord. Keep going to the end because I want to see you there. I want to see you there, my friend. When we see the Lamb, I want you to be shining in His glory before His righteous and holy throne. That's where I want to see you. When I tell you, I'd love to see you at church next Sunday. When I tell you, I'd love to see you at a home fellowship group. What I'm really saying is I want to see you there on judgment day in the presence of the glory of Jesus Christ with all of His angels. Stand firm, my friends, and we need each other to do that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, we're familiar with this idea uh, of Paul running a race. Uh, He often puts his life in those terms, that I'm running it. And we even know that he's running to the finish line. We can picture him lunging towards that tape there, trying to cross the line, giving it all that he's got. We even know this idea that he's running to win. Maybe you've heard that before. You can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 24 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Everybody's living their life. But only one receives the prize. Run that you may obtain it. Run to get the prize. Run to win the race. And then he says in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, telling themselves no. 
Now they do it. These athletes in the Olympics or professional athletes, they work so hard to train themselves. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. See, if you run and you run to win, you're going to get some kind of crown. You're going to get some kind of wreath. There's going to be some kind of good standing before Jesus Christ if you run the right way, this race that we call life. Now, we know that passage, and we love that metaphor. Yeah, let's all run to win. Let's run across the line. Everybody in this passage is Usain Bolt. You know what I mean? We're all the fastest person alive. We're all crossing the line. We're setting new PRs, personal records. Look at me. But we don't even know what we're trying to win. So many people, their understanding of this passage, what are you trying to win? What is the crown? It defines it for us. Look back at verse 19. Before it gets to that, it says, here's what you're trying to win. But though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Win who? People. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. If you're running the, the race of life, And if you're running to win, what are you trying to win? Souls. That's what you're trying to win. People. Who are you going to lead to Christ? That should be the number one question of your life. It was for Paul. Clearly, he's showing us an example. Can you say... That I am, my, right now, the way I schedule my time, the way I, I budget my money, the way I think about my priorities, it's all for the goal of winning souls for Jesus Christ. It's for those other people that show up at my church. That's who I'm running for. I think a lot of people could say their family. Who could say their church family? people that you don't even know, that you're going to have the privilege of taking through partners or sharing the gospel with, either here at church or out on the street, and they're going to become your closest companions for the rest of your life. Are you praying for those people? That would be the first step. If all of this just seems like high level, I don't know if I can do this passion for people at church kind of stuff that you're talking about. Could you start praying about it? Could you ask God for it? Could you start every day asking God, God, I want to win a soul. I want to get the gospel to somebody. Help me to become weak. Help me to become like a Jew. Whatever people are like, let me reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you think judgment day is going to be like? What is the criteria that Jesus is going to use to evaluate us when we stand before him in his holiness? Turn to Matthew chapter 25. And the criteria that Jesus will, will, will use might, might surprise you here. Because so often we think of our relationship with Jesus purely in vertical terms. Purely, well, it's just between me and Jesus Christ. Well, no, when you're, when you're a, a member of a family, it's not just between you and anybody else in the family. It's you and the whole family. And when you stand before Jesus Christ, he's not going to say, hey, you and I, we're tight. You and your church, not so much. But you and I, we're okay. No, Jesus, he surprises us here in Matthew 25. 
at the end, when you see him in his glory and he decides how he's going to judge, he throws a curveball. Look at this. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Man, Maranatha, wouldn't it be great if he came now? And all the angels with him. Just like on that first Christmas when he was born. Wouldn't it be great when he comes back? Then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nation. Here, here comes everybody. And he will separate people from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And we know what that means. Some people are going to go to heaven and some people are going to go to hell. And how does he make the decision who's going where? Look at verse 34. Then the king, the one sitting on the throne, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then these people are surprised. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, Jesus, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When, when were you a stranger and we welcomed you? When were you naked and we clothed you? When did we see you sick or in prison and vi visit you and the king, Jesus, will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Well, see, don't you get it? No, when that person showed up at church and they didn't know anybody and you welcomed them, see. It's like you were doing it to me, Jesus says. That is his relationship with you. How you treat the brothers is how you treat Jesus Christ. How you treat your church shows how you love Jesus Christ or not, see? And that person that you saw after that service, when you heard a convicting message about, do you really love other people at church? And you saw them eating donuts alone. Nobody wants to eat donuts alone. And you went over there and you didn't just make small talk. And you didn't just keep it on the surface. You treated them like you were at some weird family reunion, getting to know relatives that you'd never met before. And you said to them something like, well, can I take you out to lunch today? Say, I preached this one time to a group of people. I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to invite somebody to lunch after church. That was like the toughest reaction I ever got preaching a sermon. And I've preached about judgment. I've preached about sexual immorality. I mean, I've preached about what the Bible has to say. And I said, hey, can we go out to lunch with people we don't know? Can we reach out to people and treat them like they're our family? A lot of people didn't want to do that one. That was a sermon that didn't really go anywhere, see? Everybody just kind of went home and ate their normal sandwich. Watched football moved on with their life because that's awkward. Who wants to go hang out with people you don't know? They're probably weird, right? I mean, there's probably some weird people here. I mean, look around, right? You don't get to pick your family, my friends. God picks them for you. And I want you to look around and I want you to see the weird people here and this is your family. These are the people that you've been born again with and I want to encourage you, if this is your church, we got some people saying, I'm going to be a part of Compass Bible Church. Well, welcome to the family, my friends. And we're a little bit different here. Because I love you. And I want you to love each other. And that's how this is going to be. And if I got torn away from Huntington Beach right now and this group of people, 
I don't know where I would go or what I would do, but I would feel like a parent who had just lost a child. I hope that's how you would feel too. I hope there would be real love. That's what the world needs to see. Not on the Christmas card. No, among the Christians. That's what they need to see. Will you be one of the people who will stick out your hand and go up to somebody you don't know and say, hey, I want to I get to know you. Can we go out to lunch today? Can we have you over to my house? That's what it's going to take. It's going to take a lot of awkward social moments, my friends. Now, if I told you that a, a, a family just recently moved here and they're a part of our church and they moved to Huntington Beach in September and, you know, they, they had, they've kind of had a friend's house they could stay at half the time, but then a few times they couldn't even stay there, so they've had to get a hotel. And now this family has found a place that they can rent and it's kind of a fixer-upper, but it's exciting because this family, it, it's a little bit bigger than what they need right now, but it's a home, it's a place they could grow, it's a place that could really develop. And I said, hey, could you come over and help that family move in? Hey, would, would you even be willing? I mean, it's a family, it's got some young kids. They just had a baby not too long ago. What if we like even took a little bit of a collection and we kind of contributed some money just to help the family move into the new building? Could you guys, this family has nowhere to call their home. And now they've found a spot. They've been wandering for, for like weeks, months. Do you see where I'm going with this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. We're a family. We just got a house. It's a place that we can rent. It's a fixer-upper. And to be honest, it's too big for us. All right? It's going to require some financial resources to pay the rent on this place. It's going to require some men and women showing up and saying, hey, you know what, we could pay cleaners to come and clean these toilets, or we could be the church that cleans our own toilets. Talk about love. <laughs> but let me ask you this. Do you clean the toilets at your house? Amen. Amen. <laughs> See, if I told you, hey, you're going to have to change your budget, to help pay for this nice new place that you get to go live in. You know what you would do? You'd change your budget. I'm telling you, hey, our family's got a nice new place to live in. And if we're going to afford it, some of us are going to have to change our budget. Some of us are going to have to put in some elbow grease. It's a lot of empty room, and we're going to have to invite more people to come and be a part of this family, people that are strangers that are going to become our best friends. That's what it's going to take. For this building to really work and for us to really grow, we're going to have to be a family. And everybody's going to have to contribute to the family getting a home. So I just want to encourage you to make this group of people, if you've never been at a church that felt like a family before, welcome to Compass Bible Church Huntington Beach. This is a chance for us to do what the Bible actually says. Point number three, make sure you are running to win souls. I'm asking you, as we go into the holiday season and you got some days off and you got your New Year's resolutions coming and we're all going to go lose weight and start going to the gym more like we are every year, right? I want you to think, man, let's make a, what am I going to do to be a part of this family that God's bringing together in the new year? Take some time to reflect on that. How can I contribute to what God's doing at my church so I can really say I love those people, I'm passionate about them, I'm a part of the herd, let me pray for you guys. God, I thank you so much for your word and how it cuts to our heart that even what happened between Paul and the Thessalonians 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago, God, it still speaks to us as an example to us today. God, we confess to you that so many times we come to church for selfish reasons. So many times we think we can have a relationship with you that's just between you and us, like it's this personal relationship, and we can kind of not care about the rest of the family. God, please forgive us for that sin. God, please forgive us if anybody here at this church has been doing the work of Satan and setting up obstacles, roadblocks to keep us from getting together as a church. God, convict us of that sin. If we don't love other people at this church, if after all of these sermons that we've heard about church being a family, if we can't say that we care about other people and we're trying to get to know them, God, please stir up our hearts. Convict us of sin. And put on our hearts a great love for one another. God, we're so glad you just didn't keep it between you and your son in a personal relationship. God, we're so glad that you as the father chose to be bereft of your son. To send him down here. Not just to be born as a baby. But then when he was up on that cross. When he was taking our place. The punishment for our sin. You actually turned your own back on your son. Who was torn away from you. And you did it out of love for us us. God, if we know your love that's so good to celebrate at Christmas, God, let us re-gift that love this year, God. Let us pass it on to the brothers, to the least of these brothers and sisters and children that are here today. God, make us a church that loves one another. Only you can do this, so we ask you to. And God, we pray that we will just praise Jesus for the great things that you do at our church in this new year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.